It's Monday, March 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Putin and Russia continue their attacks on Ukraine, with civilians increasingly getting targeted in the fighting. A short-lived ceasefire was supposed to let people flee safely, but the shelling continued again. Anti-war protesters are being detained, and a new law was just passed giving someone 15 years in prison for spreading what they call fake news about the invasion. Ukraine's President Zelensky in the meantime made pleas to NATO for a no-fly zone, and to the U.S. to provide more support including an embargo on Russian oil. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for this and the latest on Trump and the January 6th committee. Next, for months, many parents have been waiting for COVID vaccines for their children under five. Instead, there's been growing confusion and frustration with shifting timelines, delays, and poor communication from the FDA. Also in question is whether the vaccine for very young children will be a two or three dose protocol. Pfizer and Moderna say that more data for this age group will be coming very soon and hope that authorization could come by April or May. Caroline Chen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica, joins us for what's holding up the vaccine for kids under five. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We need unity. We need pressure. We need sanction. We need uh, weapon support uh, because we stay front the one of the strongest army in the world, the Russian army. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Well, the situation in Ukraine continues to get worse as Russia keeps the onslaught coming. There was supposed to be some type of ceasefire so civilians could be evacuated out of certain areas. That didn't last very long. Ukraine said that Russia started shelling all over again. Russia said that they're not targeting civilians, but it's really hard to square that away when we've seen videos, pictures, all of this of the rubble in all these civilian areas and, and the people just trying to flee. You can hear bombs in the background. You know, it's really hard to say that they're not targeting these areas. So far, the UN has said that more than 1.5 million people have fled to nearby countries. That's right. So they're saying this is the largest refugee crisis that Europe has seen since World War II. We're talking about more than a million people having left Ukraine at this point, seeking refuge in other European nations, mostly Poland, but heading west from there to other countries that have opened their borders to these refugees. And you're right. um, This really looks like a horrific situation on the ground in Ukraine for civilians. The Ukrainians have said that they negotiated this ceasefire to allow the evacuation or corridors where they could allow the evacuation of civilians and that very shortly after this began the Russians began shelling again in those areas. Really graphic images now circulating on the internet of civilians who have been killed while trying to evacuate graphic videos of people trying to get out. As you mentioned, bombs are exploding around them. Um, So this is really uh, the horrors of war that we are watching unfold in Ukraine. And we're seeing the Ukrainian government continue to insist that they want to get civilians out. They want a ceasefire. They want the Russians to stop. And the Russians continuing to really push these attacks to continue this invasion throughout the country in a way that has really, as you said, put a lot of civilians in harm's way. Russia and Putin said, uh, you know, continuing the call for demilitarization of Ukraine, the denazification of Ukraine, and obviously not allowing them to join NATO. Putin has been telling, you know, other people, other leaders that everything's going according to plan, even though we've seen this 40 mile long convoy be stalled out for like a week now. And we're seeing some interesting things happen in Russia. So we're seeing 
protests, obviously propaganda, stifling the media. There was about 3,000 people across 49 cities that got detained for protests. The Russian parliament passed a bill giving somebody 15 years in prison if you spread fake news about the invasion. And we saw the members of some news organization walk out on TV. I mean, some pretty interesting stuff going on there. Yes. You talk about propaganda. You mentioned Putin saying that there's this, that, that what they're pushing is a denazification and his words of Ukraine. And really, we believe that to be propaganda. That is propaganda. Uh, there's no Nazi hold in Ukraine. This is a, a democratic government that was elected by the people that is a sovereign nation. They have not been taken over by Nazis. There is no need for the Russians to go in and eliminate Nazis from the country. And this is part of the propaganda message that they're pushing in Russia. And we have seen really what is an unusual level of pushback within the country. You mentioned the protesters who were arrested. Russia has sort of teetered the line on how much free flow of information they've allowed, protests they've allowed. We know that there has been past incidents of well-known vocal dissidents being targeted by the Kremlin. Uh, there has been many accusations that they've attempted to assassinate some of the opponents of Putin that are in the country. But there has been some vocal opposition, but we really see a crackdown in the wake of this invasion. You mentioned this law that would make it illegal to report what they're calling fake news inside of Russia. Uh, but what they consider to be fake news is dis- describing what is happening in the Ukraine as an invasion or talking about it uh, being a war. Um, And that's really a stifling of information to try to keep people in the country from opposing this invasion of Ukraine. Uh, And in the meantime, with all of this, we're seeing President Zelensky of Ukraine just plead. He had a a Zoom call with Congress over the weekend and just uh, pleading, you know, do anything for us. Uh, Put an embargo on Russian oil. Help us get fighter jets. Uh, You know, asking NATO for a no-fly zone just to help the people out there. But Zelensky really thinks that the oil is a way to go more so than taking Russia out of SWIFT. Uh, He thinks that, you know, that's going to be the main thing. The White House is still hesitant to do it just because it's going to throw global markets out of whack. And we're already seeing really high inflation, really high gas prices. So uh, White House very hesitant to do that so far. Yeah, the White House has been sort of slow to to impose oil sanctions. As you mentioned, it will likely drive the price of gas up further in the U.S. We're already seeing prices than we've had higher than we've had in recent years, and we know that the American public really feels the crunch when the price of gas goes up, um, and that can reflect in, in unhappy political positions as they feel their elected officials are failing them when the price of gas goes up. So they are reluctant to do so. We also don't have commitments from Europe. But you're right, Zelensky has been pushing for this. He thinks that's one way to really hurt the Russian economy in a way that will get pressure, particularly the the sort of wealthy, the oligarchs, the influential people in Russia who profit off of the oil industry, that they would then be inclined to put more pressure on Putin to stop. And he's also asking, as you said, for military aid. The United States has offered military aid, Poland and other European nations. The NATO has offered some military aid, but it's quite complicated. Getting them fighter jets isn't just as simple as dropping some planes (laughs) off, right? And we also had a great story from Scott Wong at NBC this weekend that you can read on our website about a concern among American lawmakers that if we start sending military aid and the government does fall and Putin does take over, that he will then have that ammo and those weapons that we have sent the Ukrainians and they will go into the wrong hands. So there's a lot of complicated pieces, not just as easy as like rolling a tank over to Ukraine. The U.S. is in talks with Poland to help Ukraine get some fighter jets. 
and obviously, you know, the turn of uh, the war machine, right? They, they'll give them their old jets and then Poland will buy some brand new jets from the United States. So that, that would be an interesting development there. But yeah, I mean, everything is just going crazy and it, it just keeps begging the question, at what point does it get so bad that other countries are going to have to get involved? And Russia doesn't seem to uh, be wanting to stop anytime soon. So uh, a lot of concerns there. I did want to talk about former President Trump before we leave. The January 6th committee issued a court filing asking a judge for more records. They want to see more stuff. Uh, they're hoping to catch the eye of Attorney General Merrick Garland. And they made a conclusion, it seems like, in trying to overturn the 2020 election and stay in office. They say Trump and others uh, might have engaged in criminal or fraudulent acts. That's right. We have a great piece up on NBC News from Peter Nicholas breaking down this filing we saw last week from the January 6th committee. They were trying to get a judge to give them some emails that were sent between Trump and a lawyer that he says should be protected by attorney-client privilege. But the committee says, no, they don't qualify as protected because they were done in the perpetuation of a, of a criminal conspiracy. And that criminal conspiracy, it's sort of a legal term, really, but it caught a lot of eyes because calling something that the former president did a criminal conspiracy uh, is sort of like making a big case uh, to the public, which hasn't been made before. And as Peter breaks down, really, this was a case to an audience of one, and that's Merrick Garland, the attorney general, who so far has shown very little interest or public signs in pursuing a criminal case into the former president for his role in January 6th. And it seemed like they made a little bit more of an argument than they needed to make to that judge to get those emails um, in order to try to also make that public case to Garland that he should be looking more closely at this case and, and considering charges himself. We're also hearing from former Attorney General Bill Barr. He has a new book out, so he's obviously talking to media outlets. But man, he uh, was going off on President Trump. He's saying, you know, he told him that it was BS about the election fraud, all of this. He even said that, you know, it was wrong for him, for Bill Barr to shovel out all of this stuff the way his team was, admitting that he was complicit in all of this stuff. So I, I think that's pretty incredible that he's just out there saying that. But, uh, you know, he, he said that Trump was broadly responsible for what happened on January 6th. That's right. Bill Barr did an exclusive interview with NBC's Lester Holt that aired on Sunday night. So you can see that on our website. And he really talked about his role in that. He said that in on December 1st, he went to the White House. He told the president, you lost. There was no fraud. According to Barr, and Trump disputes this, Barr quit and Trump accepted his resi resignation. And then he unquit a few minutes later and ended up <laughs> quitting again two weeks after that. But really that he was trying to tell the president that he lost and that there was no fraud and that the president could not be convinced. But he has said as well in the interview with Lester that he did not think he would have prosecuted the president for his role. He also said he wouldn't have prosecuted the president for having taken those documents, those classified documents from the White House that he took to Mar-a-Lago. Um, so really didn't think the president had done anything criminally wrong, just sort of called it a boneheaded plan or plot by the president. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The original regimen of the trial was a two-dose regimen. That clearly did not re reach the area of the specifications of being available in the sense of Highly protected. Joining us now is Caroline Chen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica. Thanks for joining us, Caroline. Thanks for having me. Well, wanted to check in on what's going on with vaccines for children under five. There are a lot of parents out there that are 
still waiting their kids to get vaccinated. We're seeing all sorts of mask mandates and uh, other COVID restrictions being relaxed all over the country. It really seems like we're beginning to get into this next phase of the pandemic. But there's a lot of frustration and confusion among parents who are still waiting for this piece of the puzzle for their families, for their decisions. And we're, you know, like I said, it's just a lot of confusing stuff coming out of the FDA, coming out from Pfizer and Moderna, waiting for more data. So, Caroline, you kind of dug into what the latest is that we know about all this. Tell us more about it, please. So maybe I would start with talking a little bit about what I've been hearing from parents, if, if that makes sense to sure. you, yeah, definitely. Um, just about what their concerns are. So I think there are different parents who have different opinions on, on vaccines. I know everybody wants to do the best for their kids. There was a recent poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation that found that about a third of parents don't plan to give their kids vaccines. About a third are in the wait and see. And then about a third that are really anxious to have a vaccine for their under five-year-old. And when I talked to some of those parents, their main concern was not actually preventing infection because they know that generally for kids, COVID is very mild, but they were worried about having a severe outcome, just wanting their kid to have some protection because we know that the vaccines have done very well at lowering the chances of hospitalization or other sort of serious outcomes. So I think there are a lot of parents who have the mindset that like that is what they want to prevent for their kid, even if it's rare. And unfortunately, what we found in kids so far is that for certain outcomes, like what's called MISC, which is this like multi-organ inflammation response, it's actually very hard to predict which kids might be unfortunate enough to experience that syndrome. Uh, it's not like there are some very clear risk factors for that. So I think a lot of parents who really want a vaccine are trying to prevent that kind of outcome. Yeah. That's been the anxiety with a lot of people, even adults, right? You don't really know how COVID's going to hit you. Obviously, we know people with comorbidities and all that are more susceptible mm-hmm. to severe infection, but even healthy people get affected pretty badly or develop long COVID. And even some mm-hmm. kids have developed that too. So, I mean, that's an anxiety for a lot of people. You just don't know how it's going to hit you. Yeah, exactly. And because particularly, as you mentioned, a lot of mass mandates are dropping, sort of a common refrain I've heard from a lot of parents is that they feel like they're being left behind, that the rest of the world now has this tool like the vaccine that can help keep them safer, but they're still having to behave like it was last year uh, or early 2020 with their kids because their kids don't have the option to be vaccinated yet. A lot of parents are turning to Facebook groups to share information, get some of the answers, uh, get some clarity which is great. You know, a lot of people kind of coming together, but there's also that worry that misinformation gets spread around on these groups and and whatnot. So we know that's happening. So where are we with the FDA? What is the big holdup? What's the holdup with Pfizer and Moderna? They keep saying they're waiting for more data right now. And it also seems very unclear as if we're going with a a two-dose protocol, three doses. There are a lot of questions swirling around. There's a lot to unpack here. So I'm going (laughs) to try to make this as clear as possible in a short amount of time. So we have to take these two companies separately, Pfizer and Moderna, because they're kind of going on different tracks. Pfizer was moving faster than Moderna and had started trials in kids under five in sort of two cohorts. One was age two through four, and then the other was six months through just under two. So in December, Pfizer on schedule said they had data from the trial. But what they found is even though the shots were safe for kids and they were trying two doses at that time, they said that the two to five-year-old cohort didn't hit the bar of protection that they were looking for, though the younger kids did. And so they said, we're going to now try three shots to see if that brings them up to the right level of protection. So 
then this is where it gets a little confusing. <laughs> you know, Delta and Omicron hit um, more and more kids were hospitalized and the FDA took what was really an unprecedented move to say, hey, we're going to schedule a meeting so that outside experts can review the data and see if we want to authorize two shots first with the presumption that, you know, we're going to get third shot data there. And the idea was the risk to kids is a higher than it's ever been in the pandemic right now and they can get started on a three-shot series and by the time they get to the, the moment that they're ready for the third shot that should be authorized so this was controversial because there were a lot of experts who pushed back and said well what if three shots isn't enough you're presuming efficacy that we don't know yet and so what ended up happening was pfizer did get more data real world data as this trial is ongoing and sort of timing of two things coincided so they got more data that showed that like in adults, it's been reported um, by, this is, doesn't come directly from the companies, but it's been re reported by a number of outlets that uh, the three shots still also didn't work as well against Omicron. And then the Omicron wave sort of died down. And so the FDA decided that sort of the risk benefit profile for kids nationally has changed. There's less risk now because there's less Omicron. And so they delayed that meeting to say, we're going to wait until we have data from all three shots. So right. <laughs> let's take let's take our time with are, this now. Yeah, <laughs> right. Depending on who you are, that could be really frustrating because you were just told like your kids can start maybe soon start getting shots, and then other people who are like, no, I like really want to wait for all the data to come in, might be more reassured to know that the FDA is taking a bit more time here. So, but all of this sort of came out without a ton of explanation. And so I think for parents, it felt like whiplash. You're like, you scheduled this meeting and then you delayed this meeting. Like, what's going on? How long is this going to take? That, I mean, that's been one of the biggest problems for both administrations now handling the pandemic communication coming out of things. Yeah. There is, I guess, some good news, right? The, both companies, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, say they're going to have data pretty soon. This spring, yeah. March, <laughs> you know, that timeline could change as well. The big thing is it, it does seem that the vaccines are safe. We're just trying to get ready, uh, trying to see if the antibody levels get to there, right? Or, or are we hearing anything else? So I think that is the case for Pfizer. I think, again, as I mentioned earlier on, there are different stories for different companies here. Moderna actually has not yet had their vaccine authorized for teens, the 12 to 17s, because of concerns about rare instances of myocarditis, which is where you have inflammation of the heart muscle. And so they've been, they're now testing a lower dose. But they have said, and they're trying a much smaller dose in the under fives, and that data is going to come out. They said for at least the two to fives by the end of March. Um, I'm not 100% clear if there might also be some data on the under twos. But what's an important thing that I realized was a piece of misinformation going around in a lot of parent groups was that there's this mythical FDA policy that says that the FDA cannot authorized for a younger age group before an older age group has been authorized. And that's like been called the age de-escalation policy. Right. So that is a myth that does not exist. <laughs> and that's important for parents because, for example, if Moderna's data for under fives looks really good and it's safe and it's effective, the FDA would be happy to consider authorizing for that age group even before the 12 to 17s or the potentially the 5 to 11s have their vaccine authorized. And so there's not going to be some sort of like holdup that's just logistical. And I think a lot of parents have been concerned about that because of misinformation going around. Caroline Chen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.